Well, if you will, open with me in your Bibles to Psalm 5. Psalm 5. We come this morning to the first first book of Psalms and Psalm 5 in particular as we pick up where we left off last week, including Psalm 4. This is also, of course, a Psalm of David, a Psalm that is intended to be sung, a Psalm that would have been sung by the people of God. You see here, it says to the choir master for the flutes. So this is a song, it is also a prayer, and particularly this morning as we make our way through this psalm, we'll be looking at it as a prayer and drawing lessons uh, for prayer from it. So we'll begin by reading together Psalm 5, beginning in verse 1, a psalm of David, and David writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning, give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice, in the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Let's go to the Lord again in prayer. Father, you are a God who hears the prayers of your people and their cries. Long ago, David, in the midst of his afflictions, his persecutions, his fleeing, for his life in the midst of a period when unrighteous and wicked men were seeking to kill him. 
You had nowhere to go but to you. And he cried out to you. And he appealed to you on the basis of who you are. He appealed to you on the basis of the promises that you had made to him and the covenants that you had made with your people to act in his favor to vindicate him over and against the wicked and to bring the wicked to an end. And in this prayer, Lord, we, we also can learn how we are to approach you in the throne of grace, how we can lift up our cries to you. You call us all throughout your word to pray to you to give our petitions to you. You delight to hear the prayers of your people. You delight to answer them. And yet so often we keep our mouths shut and we try to be our own saviors. So God, humble us this morning. And as we look at your word, teach us to pray. Teach us to be a people who cry out to you in boldness, who grab hold of your promises, and to ask of you to keep them. Open our mouths, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the Gospel of Luke, beginning in uh, chapter 11, Luke tells us that when Jesus finished praying at a certain place, one of his disciples came to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. This, uh, this request, one of Jesus' disciples, a very simple request, teaches us something about prayer. It teaches us, on the one hand, that prayer itself must be taught, and on the other, that it, it must be learned. Prayer is not a natural discipline. It is distinct, distinctly spiritual, uniquely so. It is a necessary part of putting on the whole armor of God, which is a spiritual armor. Just as our spiritual armor would be incomplete if we fastened on the belt of truth without the breastplate of righteousness, so also is it the case that if we take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, without the prayers that we are to offer, we will be using our spiritual weapons wrongly. Prayer and the Word must go together. But because prayer is distinctly a spiritual work, and it must be learned the very pursuit of growing in prayer can be fraught with all kinds of difficulties because it is 
a discipline that is found on the front lines of spiritual warfare. Everything in our natural flesh rages against it. This is why Thomas Cobbett once said, we must sometimes pray that we may pray. And when, as we are apt to judge ourselves, that we are most unfit to pray, then to pray that we may become fit to pray. We must pray to pray. Prayer is like a language. And the only way to learn a language is to hear it and to see it and to imitate it. And just as a child learns to speak by hearing his parents and imitating them, of course, babbling at first and then maturing into greater fluency, so also is it the case that the Christian must learn the language of prayer by hearing it and seeing it and imitating it. Of course, there is a problem, though. If the Christian church, broadly speaking, is very weak in prayer. That, of course, doesn't leave us with many teachers to learn from. If the church's prayers are characterized, by and large, by infantile babbling, well, then the danger is that all we'll learn to do is to continue babbling all the more. Our prayers will be marked by meaningless phrases that are repeated over and over again. The name of God will be used as nothing more than a filler word, equivalent to an uh or an um. Our petitions will rise no higher than requests for healing. We will pray no better than the Gentiles who, as Jesus said, heap up empty phrases and who think that by their many words they will be heard. In many ways, this discipline has largely been lost by many churches. Not many churches even have prayer meetings anymore. Not many Christians have even had the experience of growing up around parents who were mighty in prayer. And so there's a very real sense in which we have to rebuild the foundations. We have to start anew. We have to revive a dead language and begin speaking it again. We have to mature beyond the babbling and grow into fluency so that the prayers that we offer to God are prayers that come to Him with biblical boldness. And thus, they will be prayers that when answered will indeed shake the foundations of the earth and cast mountains into the sea. They will be strong prayers. We have a quote outside by a man named John Knox, Scottish 
Presbyterian, Scottish reformer. And it was said of him by Queen Mary that she feared the prayers of John Knox far more than any army she could ever fight against. Those are the kinds of prayers we need. Earth-shattering prayers. And in order to mature in this and to recover what has been lost, we must go to Scripture and learn from God Himself. Thomas Case once said that one great use which Christians should make of reading the Scriptures is to learn from them the language of prayer. And so as we look at Psalm 5 this morning, that's what I want us to do. To learn the language of prayer. Psalm 5, like many of the Psalms, is a prayer. The first two books of the Psalter, of course, ends by saying the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. This is a prayer. And it's a bold prayer. It is a mature, a confident prayer. And so as we look at it, I want to give you this morning four lessons about bold praying from the prayer of the king. We want to go to school this morning, and we want to learn from the master, the king. And the first lesson is this. Bold prayer must be deliberate. Bold prayer must be deliberate, which is to say that it can't be haphazard. It should be well thought out. It should be intentional. That's, of course, not to say that it can never be spontaneous and that you must write out all of your prayers. It's simply to say that you should think about your prayers before praying them and think biblically about them. Now, you can see this aspect of praying in verses 1 to 3 of the psalm. David here calls upon the Lord. He says, give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. The LSB renders this last word as consider my meditation, and rightly so, because the word here is related to the one that we find in Psalm 1, verse 2, where the blessed man is the one who meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. This is a related word that is being used here. And that meditation, of course, involves thinking over and reciting the very contents of the law. And the point is that there is a verbalizing of the prayer to God. There are words that have to be used. Verse 2, he says, give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. There is also an urgency to the prayer. There's an element of desperation. The only one who can help 
the only one who can do anything about the prayer is God. There is no one else to go to. And notice also that David addresses God as my king. My king. That's also important to note because it is the king who functions as a judge for the people. You'll remember from Psalm 3 that one of the ways that Absalom was drawing the hearts of Israel to himself in a conspiracy against David was by speaking with people who had disputes that they intended to bring to the king for judgment. And Absalom would tell them, if I were judge, I would give you justice. If I were king, I would render in your favor in this dispute. The king serves as judge. And so David is appealing to God, the king and the judge, to hear his outcry, to hear his complaint, to hear his dispute. But then look further at verse 3. He says, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice, and in the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. Now, if you have the ESV, you'll notice that there's a note there that says, I direct my prayer to you. And the reason is because in the original language, it simply says, I prepare or I arrange for you. And what is being prepared or what is being arranged has to be supplied from the context. And so some say he's preparing a sacrifice. Others are saying that from the context, this is a prayer that is being prepared. There's a similar phrase that's used in Isaiah 44, verse 7. And there, God is entering into a dispute with anyone who would challenge his unique status as the only true God. And he says, who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare it. And then here's our phrase, and let him set it before me. Let him make his case before me. Let him make an argument, in other words. And that's similar to what David is saying here in Psalm 5, verse 3. He is saying that in the morning, the Lord will hear his voice. He's going to go to God in the morning with a prayer, and the Lord will hear it. And he's going to set his case before him, or prepare his prayer before him, or arrange it in an orderly manner and watch. The point is that David is saying that he's going to spend the night working through how to bring his prayer to God. He intends to speak with the king in the morning. And when he speaks with him, he wants to be sure that he has something to say. He has a case to be made. There is deliberation, in other words. 
that's going into his prayer. And friends, it ought to be the same with us. Bold praying is not mindless praying. There is a great difference between arrogant boldness and biblical boldness, especially when it comes to prayer. Arrogant boldness is like a man who storms into the courtroom of a judge and he has nothing to say. He acts as if his mere presence and whatever random thoughts come to his mind is enough to persuade the judge. And this, of course, can often be how we approach God in prayer. We haven't given a moment's thought to our prayer. And so when we come before the king, we say nothing more than, Lord, Lord, Lord. And a few cliches here and a few cliches there. We use words and we say nothing with the words. Or, of course, these days, some people don't even use words at all. They just utter gibberish and they call it a prayer language and they offer up random syllables to God. That's not boldness. That's arrogance. That's a presumption that the very sound of your vocal cords is enough to gain a hearing with the king. But biblical boldness in prayer, true boldness calls us to prepare, to have something to say to the king. We have an appointment with the king. And when we meet with him, we have to make our case to him. Spurgeon once said that prayer without preparation is like hawking with a blind falcon. Or we could say hunting with an empty gun. Bold prayer must be deliberate. And so before you approach the king to make your case, you must be intentional to prepare and then argue your case before the king. Now, of course, that implies something, doesn't it? If you're going to make an argument to the king, it better be in accordance with his word. It requires that we have an understanding of his word, an understanding of his nature, an understanding of his promises which is what we'll consider next. The second point, that bold prayer must appeal to God's character. It must appeal to God's character. When we are standing before the king, bowing before the king, offering up our prayers to the king, we must appeal to who he is. And these following points concern the content of our prayers and how we can deliberate and make our case before God. And again, one of the things that we must do is to appeal to God's character. And we see David doing this in verses 4 to 7. The context of this 
prayer is similar, of course, to the previous Psalms, where David is seeking deliverance for himself and for those who are with him and from his enemies who have risen against him. They are persecuting him. They are slandering him unjustly. And so as David offers his prayer to God for deliverance, he appeals to God's character. He says in verse 4, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. Literally, it may not sojourn with you. It cannot be in your presence even for the slightest of moments. You are such a holy God that it displeases you even to look upon sin. This is who God is. He is a righteous God. He is in His very nature opposed to all evil. He says further in verse 5, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. That's not an overstatement. David's not using hyperbole here either. Nor is it the case that David is in error and just doesn't understand the grace of God yet. No, God hates the one who practices evil. This is a true statement in its absolute sense. As long as someone is stubbornly rebelling against God, they are his enemy. And those who remain in their rebellion until their appointed end will know only the hatred and wrath of God for all eternity. If you have any doubts about this, about his hatred towards evildoers, not just evil as a concept, but evildoers, and the fact that his wrath is meted out upon people, Look no further than the cross. The wrath of God that was poured out on the Son was not a fiction. It was not a gentle slap on the wrist. It was the fury of His judgment against sin and sinners. So as we sing in one of our hymns about the cross of Christ, you... Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great here may view its nature rightly and here its guilt may estimate. You want to have a right understanding of God's hatred towards sin and sinners. You look at the cross and you see what takes place there. God has a holy hatred towards sin not merely as an ethical 
violation and wrongdoing that has been committed or as a violation of a principle, but he has a hatred towards the one doing it. The old cliche that you hear all the time these days, God hates the sin, but not the sinner, really has no biblical basis. Notice further in verse 6, you destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors, he abominates the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Now we will look at the grace of God later, but here... I want you to allow the full weight of these words to have their effect. He hates evil doers. The righteous, holy character of God is such that he has no pleasure in evil at all. He is wholly opposed to it. And when his holy judgments are poured out against it, both temporally and eternally, his judgments are not taking aim at sin as a concept or as an idea. His judgments fall upon sinners. In the final judgment, it is not simply evil as an idea that is cast into the lake of fire. It is evildoers, murderers, the sexually immoral, the cowardly. It's people. God is opposed wholly to rebellious people. And in David's prayer, David is appealing to this character of God for his own deliverance. Wicked men are seeking to do wickedness to him. Bloodthirsty, deceitful, slanderous men, some from his own house, are seeking his very life. And he's saying to God, God, you hate this. This evil is completely opposed to who you are. This evil causes your anger to burn. And he appeals to God's righteous character in judging evildoers because it is on this basis that he will make his case to God for his own deliverance. But then we see here also in verse 7, that he not only appeals to God's character as one who opposes evil, but he also appeals to God's covenantal character as the reason why he can approach him with such boldness. He says in verse 7, But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. 
The steadfast love of God, as we've seen before, is a covenantal term. And it refers to God's covenantal faithfulness. His determination to uphold the promises that he's made in his various covenants. God, of course, made specific promises to David about establishing David's own throne forever and uniting the house of God with the house of David. And because God had made these promises, David could appeal to God's character as a God of steadfast love, as a God who keeps his covenant in his prayer for deliverance. So when we pray, when we deliberate what to pray, we must appeal to the character of God. We must go to him just as Abraham went to him when Abraham was interceding on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah, not knowing if there were any righteous in the city who could be spared of God's judgments He intercedes to God on their behalf and he says, far be it from you to put the righteous to death with the wicked. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? He is appealing to who God is in his own nature. And God answers that prayer. He saves the righteous which was only one man, Lot, and his daughters, and the rest were destroyed. Abraham is a model, like David, of appealing to God on the basis of who he has revealed himself to be. So, you must reason with God. You must appeal to his character He invites you to do this very thing. He teaches us to pray in this manner. And so we are to draw near to him with confidence at the throne of grace. Third, bold prayer must appeal to God's curses. Bold prayer must appeal to God's curses. Curses. This is one side of the coin of appealing to God's promises in His Word in our prayers. The other side of the coin is His blessings, appealing to His blessings, which we'll look at in just a moment. But here, I simply want to make the point that we are to use the promises of God in our prayers. And that includes... His promises to judge and his promises to bless. This is what David does, verses 8 to 10. He begins in verse 8 with a petition Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. While enemies surround him, and while they seek to kill him, David desires to be vindicated. He wants his righteousness to be God's righteousness. He wants his actions to be a reflection of God's 
actions. He aims to be blameless in the midst of people who are trying to ruin him. And he appeals to God that God would make God's way, the way of righteousness, straight before him. And then he goes on to contrast his desire to follow the ways of the Lord with the ways of the enemies. And he focuses specifically on the wicked use of his enemies' tongues, their unholy speech. He says, for there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter. They speak smooth things with their tongues. What his enemies are uttering with their mouths is revealing the corruption, the deadness that is within their hearts. No truth comes out of their mouths because there is no truth that resides within them. It's only lies. He describes what's in them as death itself. They are rotten to the core. When they speak, their breath is giving off the stench of a rotting corpse. They are an open grave. What is coming out of them is nothing more than maggots. Now they dress their words up, no doubt. They speak smooth things. They are speaking things that sound nice. They are flattering. This is what Absalom did when he stole Israel's heart away. He was telling them the things they wanted to hear. He was giving them words that they received as life-giving words. But the only thing that was coming out of his mouth was rebellion and destruction. His words were like dressing up a dead body. The Apostle Paul quotes these very words in Romans 3, text we read earlier to describe the Jews in his own day. They had not changed since David's day, just as they had rebelled against God in David's day, so also in Paul and Jesus' day were they continuing in their rebellion against God and his anointed one. And of course, the broader point that Paul is making in the context of Romans is that this is really how all men are, apart from Christ, and in their rebellion against God. The tongue is used to spread death. And in doing so, it really exposes what's inside a man. As Jesus himself said, it's what comes out of a person that defiles him. For from within, out of the heart, comes things like murder, wickedness, deceit, slander. It's what's within the fallen nature of man. When it comes out, it reveals the decay that is within, which is why Paul says that all 
are under sin. All, apart from Christ, are under God's judgment. David's enemies are using their words and causing there to be havoc throughout the land. And so he prays to God in verse 10. He says, make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsel. It's like what he prayed when he prayed against Ahithophel's counsel. May Ahithophel's counsel fall. Make their own counsels be their end. In other words, they are all devising these wicked plans. And he is calling upon God that these very wicked plans that these wicked men are making would be their own downfall. They would set a trap for themselves. He goes on, because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. Here, David is appealing to God to carry out the curses of the Mosaic law against them. Rebellion is a term that is used frequently throughout the law to describe Israel's constant failure to obey the word of God. For example, Moses says in Deuteronomy 9, verse 7, Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. And likewise, the casting out is the same word that is used in Deuteronomy 30, verse 1, where Israel's eventual exile from the land is described. David is calling upon God to exile these men, to bring the Mosaic curses upon them. The point is that he's drawing on the language of the law as his appeal for God's actions. For those who are breaking the covenant and in their wickedness are seeking to do harm to him, he's appealing to God to carry out the curses of the covenant against him which is nothing more than saying, God, keep your word. This is what you said you would do. If they rebel against me, I will curse them. If they obey my law, I will bless them. God, keep your word. That's what he's saying. On the other side of the coin, David also appeals to God's blessings in his prayer. This is our fourth and final point, that bold prayer must appeal to God's blessings. David, in this psalm, is not only interested about the outcome of the wicked. He is also interested in the outcome of the righteous. The judgment of God does not have to be inevitable. His holy hatred towards sinners does not guarantee that you and I, as sinners, must necessarily suffer His wrath. 
David, of course, himself was not without sin. He committed great sin. He organized, he himself conspired and plotted to have a man murdered to cover up his own sin. But the difference between those whom God hates and those whom he blesses is not a difference between some people who have sinned and other people who have not. The righteous are not marked by being without sin. Now we have all sinned. We all fall woefully short of the glory of God. The Apostle Paul, when quoting from this very psalm in Romans 3, makes the point that all are under sin. What determines whether or not you have God as your enemy or God as your shield is whether or not you continue in your rebellion or you repent of your sin. Notice what David says in verse 11. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. This is the same language that we saw at the end of Psalm 2 where it says there, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And you'll remember that those were words that were directed that is a command that is issued to the very same people who in the beginning of Psalm 2 are rebelling and plotting against the Lord and His Son. They, the sinners, the rebels, are being called to turn away from their rebellion, join themselves to the eternal King, Take refuge in him, and then you will be blessed. And likewise, here in Psalm 5, David prays that those who take refuge in God would rejoice. That God would bless them. That he would protect them as a shield and cause them to sing for joy. He is doing, again, here, nothing more than praying for the very things that God promises. That he will bless the righteous. He will bless those who join themselves to the king and join themselves to the God of the king. He will bless them. But to those who continue their plotting and their rebellion and who in vanity seek to overthrow his eternal reign, curses will come upon them. That is the content, the essence of David's prayers, that God would keep his word. And so friends, when we pray and we offer up bold prayers to God, we must grab hold of His promises. They are our legal case to God. They are 
the content that we are to organize and bring to the righteous judge. As we approach the throne of grace, we ought not to approach him with nothing to say or with just whatever comes to mind. We need to prepare. If it's in the evening, we can think over what we are going to say when we come to him in the morning. And we can bring our prayers to him then and argue our case before him. Let me ask you this question as we close this morning. Do you long to see reformation? The most frequent word that is probably used in evangelicalism to describe a work of God in which sinners are saved is revival. We often think of revival as just this quick, momentary thing that happens. People are changed, and then there's abiding results. Reformation, on the other hand, requires work, requires long-sustained effort, But as we work for those, those things, it leaves abiding fruit. So do we want reformation? Do we want people not only to make initial professions of faith, but to grow in that faith, to raise children in that faith? Do we want to see generations walking with God? Do we want to see a nation that has descended into the abyss of Sodom and Gomorrah to be restored, to be made holy, to be dominated by and large by a people who love God? It should be our desire. I want every single person on planet Earth giving the king the honor that is due his name. Do we want that? If we do, if we long to see sinners saved and wickedness that permeates the world abated by the conversion of the ungodly, through the work of Almighty God. Your politics aren't going to change that. But your prayers will. We must go to God and we have to make our case before the King. We have to appeal to His character. We have to appeal to His Word. Father, you have made promises, have you not? You have given the peoples, the nations to your son as his inheritance. 
that all the world would praise him. That's what you said. In your word, you promise that all who endure, all who conquer by the blood of the Lamb will likewise receive an inheritance and will reign over the nations. You've promised that. You've commanded us as your people to preach the gospel, to make disciples of the nations. While the peoples are in rebellion against you, your name is being blasphemed. The name of Christ is being mocked and driven through the mud. So come, God, and shatter your enemies. Break the will of the rebellious. Crack them at their knees. What does David say? Basically, strike them in the face. Use your might and break the rebellious and draw your elect to yourself. Call your people God through the preaching of your word. We have to pray that every single hindrance of the gospel going forth would be brought to an end. Why? Not for our glory. Not so that our church may be full. So that Jesus' name may be exalted. He's the one who's been given the nations. This is what God has promised. And so this evening, we should go to sleep. Before we go to sleep, we should think about the case that needs to be made before God. He's invited us to do so. Again, we have an open door. But before we come to his throne, we need to think about that case. And in the morning, we need to come to him. And we need to lift up our cries to him. And on the next day, the same. And on the next day, the same. Until we see the answer. I will make the prayer. And then I'll watch. And I'll watch him answer the prayer. Let us be a bold people who shatter the foundations of the earth with our prayers. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, you are the God who caused the seas to part. You drew up a people who had no power, no help in themselves. 
you drew them out of slavery in Egypt and in accordance with the words that you had promised to their forefathers long ago, you brought them into a land flowing with milk and honey. In the same way, God, you have made promises to us. you would bring us into a land flowing with milk and honey, New Jerusalem that covers the whole face of the earth. And you have made promises to your son that his kingdom will be populated by a people from all the nations. And you've sent us out as messengers to declare the praises of the king, to announce that he has been exalted at your right hand and that now everyone in all places is being called to repent. So God, as you have made these promises to us and to your son, we pray that you would answer. We pray that as the word is proclaimed from this place and as we go out from here and proclaim it further, that our words would carry out your will. That you would use our words by the work of the Spirit to gather your people to yourself. That as we cast the wide net of the gospel into the sea, when we draw it up, it will be full of sinners who have been ransomed by the blood of Christ. Father, be merciful to us. No longer let evil reign supreme. But may the fame of your Son be exalted here and in this city and to the ends of the earth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.